Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. G'day and welcome to Macquarie Street, the political podcast that brings you the information that the mainstream media won't. I'm Lyle Shelton, Director of Campaigns and Communications at the Christian Democratic Party in Sydney. On this week's show, we're going to have a look at the political earthquake in Virginia in the United States, where parent power has played a big role in flipping a blue state red. America's mums and dads are waking up to the brainwashing of their children in public education. What has happened in Virginia has big implications for Australia, which we'll unpack a little later. Now, in a, in a democracy, there's nothing more important than the trust between those who, who govern and those who are governed. I'll take a look at how the COVID pandemic is stretching that trust uh, to breaking point. Also later in the show is my interview with someone who I've really come to admire and consider to be an increasingly important public intellectual in this nation, and that is Dr. Stephen Shavura. You won't want to miss that. We're going to be discussing the tensions between civil discourse and political activism and how to get the balance right. But first, I refuse to be shocked by the rainbow political lobby's continual attempts to deconstruct our society. As we approach the fourth anniversary of the so-called marriage equality uh, debate, the media is reporting uh, that rates of babies deliberately denied the love of their mother and father are going up. They don't exactly describe it that way. They prefer to use euphemisms and slippery slope sort of language designed to lull us into accepting uh, what uh, accepting what is actually outrageous. Last Sunday's Telegraph newspaper featured a story on two men who recently acquired a baby using surrogacy. This unethical practice intentionally robs a baby of the love and nurture of his or her mother so two gay married men can have a child. The Telegraph described what it called a boom in surrogacy in Australia thanks to gay marriage and poor countries clamping down on the exploitation of women through surrogacy. The article featured uh, surrogacy lawyer Sarah Jefford, uh, a Greens candidate who uh, um, carried a baby for two homosexual men herself. She says her business as a lawyer has tripled since marriage equality. Jefford told The Telegraph, and I quote, In 2018, the year after marriage equality, there were 86 surrogacy babies born through IVF and I estimate there are probably another 12 or so outside of a clinic using home insemination. So about, a one, about 100 a year. Stats a few years ago were 60 babies a year. This year alone, I have had 109 surrogacy arrangements so far, and I'm only one lawyer. I'd estimate there are around 250 to 300 a year in Australia. About a third will end up with a baby because IVF is not always successful, end quote. Jefford said the rates are climbing due to marriage equality, the pandemic closing borders, and overseas countries banning surrogacy arrangements. The article also featured a gay couple, John Paul Daly and Kane Muller, posing in a photo with a surrogate mother, Sam Essex, uh, and a baby boy who gave these gay guys the right to assign the child's gender. Uh, the boy's name is Luca. He was created in a test tube using an egg from an anonymous woman and Cain's sperm. As a fertilised egg, Luca was then implanted into Sam's womb to be gestated and delivered to John and Cain. 
This means four adults have a biological or emotional stake in Luca's life. In case anyone is confused, it is worth remembering that uh, most of us uh, simply just have a mum and a dad. Now, Luca will probably never know who his biological mother, the egg donor, is, or he will, nor will he grow up with the day-to-day -day love and nurture of the woman, Sam, who gave birth to him. He will be denied the complementarian love of his mother for life. And the Telegraph celebrates this as some sort of public good. It bemoans the fact that under Australian law, uh, surrogacy must be voluntary. No money is allowed to change hands. However, when Morrison Government Assistant Minister Tim Wilson was a commissioner with the Australian Human Rights Commission, he released a taxpayer-funded report which advocated commercial surrogacy as a way of providing equality for gay married men. The idea of women's wombs for hire and a commercial market in human babies should be repulsive to every Australian. It's bad enough that we have stumbled into the stealing of motherhood and fatherhood. Um, the Telegraph didn't mention the rising rates of sperm donation so lesbians can inquire children. From children as a consequence of marriage equality. My friend, Dr. David Van Gend did warn us of this in his excellent 2017 book, Stealing from a Child, The Injustice of Marriage Equality. But hey, what did he know? Friends, we're gonna embrace our parents, not ignore them. We're gonna press forward with a curriculum that includes listening to parents' input, a curriculum that allows our children to run as fast as they can, teaching them how to think, enabling their dreams to soar. Friends, we are going to re-establish excellence in our schools. Okay, that was the voice of the new Republican governor of Virginia, Glenn Yonkin, giving his victory speech this week. Voters in the Commonwealth of Virginia just delivered a message that will radiate hope to Christians and conservatives uh, in the Commonwealth of Australia. Parents' concerns about LGBTIQA plus gender fluid ideology and toxic critical race theory, CRT, just delivered a, po a political earthquake. The deep blue Democrat state flipped Republican red after woke elites patronizingly dismissed and ridiculed their concerns about what their children are being taught. The National School Boards Association even took the extraordinary step of writing to the White House, labeling parents domestic terrorists for voicing their concerns at school board meetings. President Joe Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland ordered the FBI to investigate parents sending shockwaves across the nation. This was all in the lead up to the election. The Virginia result is a repudiation of Biden's transgender and cultural Marxist agenda. It represents the awakening of mainstream American parents to the brainwashing of their children in out of control in an out-of-control educational system. The Democrat gubernatorial candidate, McAuliffe, denied that CRT was even happening. That was just a lie. Controversy in Loudoun County went national after a 15-year-old girl was raped last May in the girls' bathrooms of a school by a boy wearing a skirt. That boy was not transgender, according to his mother, but he did identify as pansexual, she said. 
Nonetheless, the tragedy focused attention and parental, parental anger on gender fluid policies in schools which allow boys identifying as non-binary access to private facilities for girls. Even left wing news is reporting that this election result was a result of the culture war of gender fluidity and um, CRT. What's more, uh, Yonkin's Republican Lieutenant Governor elect Winsome Sears is African American and the first black woman elected statewide in Virginia. In case you haven't noticed, I am black and I have been black all my life. So much for the left's narrative that white people exercise bias and children need to be taught America's uh, that Americans remain bigots because of historic slavery. Conservative voters in Virginia just broke that mold. She finished her speech by thanking God. Take a listen. We ran an impossible, improbable campaign against God was exactly with us. Otherwise, we would never have made it. And so I want to finish up by thanking you, Jesus, how sweet it is. Amazing. With Liberal and national politicians here in Australia refusing to act on rainbow gender fluid indoctrination in our own schools and also critical race theory, the CDP will be campaigning hard on these issues in upcoming federal and state elections. American awakenings always trickle down under. We hear a lot about uh, civil the need for civil discourse. Uh, if only we could resolve the culture wars by sitting down and having a nice conversation. I think we'd all like that, but sadly we find ourselves having to fight in the public square for the truth. In this week's feature interview, I speak with my good friend, Dr. Stephen Shavora, who I consider to be one of the key rising conservative intellectual voices in our nation. Dr. Shavora teaches European and Australian history at Campion College, a fantastic institution in Sydney. He's also the author of The Forgotten Menzies, The World, World Picture of Australia's longest serving prime minister with uh, Jeffrey Malouch. And he's also uh, authored uh, Reason, Religion and the Australian Polity, a Secular State? Question mark with John Gascoigne and Ian Treganza. I spoke with Dr. Shavora earlier in the week. Well, Dr. Stephen Shavora, thanks for being with me on Macquarie Street. My pleasure, Lyle. Thanks for having me on. Well, well uh, <laughs> you, you may not say that afterwards, but uh, here we go. Um, Steve, uh, this conversation for me was prompted uh, as I was reading uh, this excellent book by Oz Guinness, who I know is a hero for both of us, Last Call for Liberty, um, How America's Genius for Freedom Has Become Its Greatest Threat. A lot of great thoughts in this book. I was reading it late one night and um, Oz has all these gems in it. And so I just tweeted one of his gems out there just because I felt I should share what I was reading with the uh, Twitterverse. And so I tweeted Oz's quote, nothing is more important than the forging of a civil public square. And uh, within minutes, uh, you must have been awake as well at the start of the night. <laughs> and you tweeted back, civil public square, for what? <laughs> So we can have the loveliest conversations and watch the left continue to do its work. Intellectuals think everything comes back to having a conversation. Nope. We need continued grassroots change and activism. I thought, holy mackerel, I've just been slammed by Steve Shabora <laughs> after quoting one of my heroes, Oz Guinness. And the, yeah. and the tension for me was I agree with both. So tell me what you were thinking that night, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was obviously in a bad mood. I was, um, yeah. And I must have come across your quote and then this just 
um, um, reaction against it. But but in actual fact, um, I guess I guess what I've over the last few years, particularly since the same-sex marriage debate, one thing I've become very frustrated with Lyle is is a kind of um, there's a there's a, there's a kind of a, a approach that seems to have sort of permeated a lot of Christianity in, in Australia and and also in America, and and it's and it's kind of the approach that. Um, that policy problems, that really bad movements that are really negatively affecting real people, that these things ultimately can be adequately addressed through good arguments, through debate. And it it sounds so plausible that, you know, what's the solution to bad policy? Oh, a good debate. But... um, what what seems to have happened is that it's kind of morphed into just um, seeing the dynamics of of politics, the dynamics of how uh, social policy comes about, purely in sort of intellectualistic terms. That no, you don't need to uh, threaten politicians' careers. You don't need to mobilize people and tell politicians that you've got a lot of people behind you and really sort of put the fear of God into them and say, you know, if you actually pass this bad policy, uh, I am going to really make you hurt politically. I'm going to, um, really draw people's attention to this. And this could really damage your career. It could damage your brand. It could damage your party. It will damage your future prospects of election. That's almost being seen increasingly is something you know really really dirty and what we should really be just doing is offering sort of winsome uh, rational arguments and I guess where I'm coming from there is that you know you, you know you want an intelligent public debate whatever we mean by public debate and I'm not even too sure exactly what that is but I'm sure it exists if you want an intelligent public debate but but you also want actual change. You, you also want good policy. And good policy is not just the upshot of a bunch of intellectuals discussing things and, and posting their articles in Eternity Magazine and the ABC Religion and Ethics website. You know, it is because a lot of people hit the streets, a lot of people sign petitions, a lot of people actually visit politicians and say, These, this is the number of people who um, I stand for. And they they actually do put pressure on politicians and also the, the mechanics of, of 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 political parties that you get people joining political parties to swing seats and things like that. And so where I was coming from with that is that I suppose it, it's it's one of my frustrations with intellectuals. Um, uh, intellectuals greatly frustrate me because they they often tend to think that the answer to all the problems in the world is just if we think about them better, if we think about them more clearly, or if we have a discussion, we need to have a public discussion. Whereas that's only a bit of what's actually necessary to make really positive changes. And it gets really bad when intellectuals start sort of poo-pooing sort of the less articulate uh, Christian activists who are doing their best trying to uh, do good work out there. And they they look at their arguments and they sort of say, oh, these arguments are unnuanced. So that's a bad argument. That's just a slippery slope yeah. argument, whatever. Um, so that's really yeah, I, what I, 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 I was sort of talking my, about. I think I'd put my hand up uh, and say, look, I'm one of those um, activists who perhaps don't always get the nuances 
right, and and uh, and that's why More I take. Do I. Well, you know, I, I'd probably put you in the camp of, of being one of those uh, intellectuals and, and being able to engage at that level. And we do need those uh, academic voices of which uh, you certainly are important. But um, the scary thing to me, though, is um, is if uh, the, the, the left, to use that term, um, you know, in its sort of generic sense, uh, are at the point now where um, debate, reason, civility even, uh, is not even possible with them. That's the thing that scares me. And and I was wondering if that's was part of what motivated your reaction to me tweeting Oz Guinness's, um, and, and I'm sure Oz wouldn't disagree with anything you just said, by the way, mm. but I wonder, uh, the thing that went through my mind is Steve actually saying that uh, we actually can't have a civil debate anymore because the left simply uh, are beyond reason. It's all now will to power uh, in terms of, you know, getting your way in the public square in the public discourse um hmm i mean that's that's a that's an interesting um point that you've made i I wouldn't want to say that the left are no longer capable of listening to a reasoned argument because i i I don't think it's true and of course there are you know different shades of leftism You, you do have representatives of the left um who are absolutely incapable of uh, listening to anything rational, um, and but you of course have the, have the same on the right as well. I, I think I think what really stifles um, well, I don't know if it stifles public debate, but uh, I think that the big difference is that, and it's a, it's not a bad thing in a way, but you know, social media gives many many voices great volume. And what it means is that you can mobilize virtual mobs, virtual lynch mobs, very, very quickly, which can really debase uh, what we might call public debate. And so I'm actually personally torn in some ways because I actually really like social media. I really like Twitter. I really like Facebook. I really like all the other media um, because the gatekeepers are, in a sense, they're gone. And, and people who have views that are not authorised by the, the mainstream media are able to get their views out there. And I think that's important. If, if I can give an example, you know, people sort of bag out the alternative media and the, you know, the intellectual dark web or whatever they want to call it. But it wasn't from the mainstream media, the major newspapers and the major news sources, for example, that I first heard that they were doing experiments with with um, coronaviruses at the Wuhan lab. It wasn't from those sources that I first heard that Fauci was was involved in gain-of-function research. And there are a whole bunch of other things that I can list that I didn't first hear from the mainstream. And now those things are kind of mainstream news. And so, but, but the cost of all of this is that it becomes very, very easy for a, a debate to quickly become about personalities, to become very, very tribal. And I don't think there's really any solution to that. And, and that's why I, I, I do think public debate has permanently changed. And that's why I think looking to public debate as a kind of savior, trying to restore public debate yeah. to some pristine condition, which I doubt ever really existed, I, I think um, it, it's very, very misguided. 
So, yeah, look, I'm really glad you raised those examples of the Wuhan lab and, and the Fauci issue. Um, you know, this goes to the origins of coronavirus because the public discourse, so the public square, if we go back to uh, the original quote from, from Guinness and the issue that you and I were grappling with on Twitter mm. back in October, uh, is that, well, if, if you can just have a civil you know, debate about this. So, you know, put forward the proposition, well, the, the virus might have arisen from, um, you know, a People's Liberation Army military program in a, in a lab in Wuhan. And, of course, that was just dismissed as conspiracy mm. theory. You're a right-wing nutter. Yeah. Uh, you know, Donald Trump sort of gave some credence to it, so therefore it was all... And, and mm. so any rational discussion of that just went out the window. Um, so yeah. straight away, Oz Guinness's theory is just blown apart. And, and I guess that's where it comes back to your counter. Well, you've got to counter that sort of irrationality with activism because the conversation won't cut it. And it, and it took activist journalism in the alternative media space for that to sp finally spill out into the mainstream media. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I just even remembered another, another one where I first heard that the, the vaccines wear off. I remember reading about that again in the alternative media. I remember posting it on Facebook and a friend of mine uh, who's an incredibly intelligent guy, much smarter than me, I remember him literally just laughing at me and saying, where'd you get that from? Of course, now it's totally mainstream. We're, we're basically yeah. going to go through our booster shots now. Um, but... Um, yeah, sorry, you were going to say something. No, well, well that, that's the point. And, and that's, again, as you said, it's a further illustration. So we can all think, yeah, let's let's forge a civil public square as Oz rightly calls for. Yeah. And I think we should always be civil. But at the end of the day, um, your counterpoint is activism's got to, got to back that civil discussion up. Otherwise, yeah. uh, the, the weight of argument just doesn't carry it. This, yeah, that's exactly right. But this, this is the point that I would make. I mean, people might say, oh, Shavur is saying that, that rational debate arguments have no place. No, they do, because they, they justify activism. So, you know, for every activist out there who's putting pressure on, a, on an MP um, to do yeah. something that the MP might not otherwise want to do, or, you know, or, or, or really just drawing attention, even negative attention to a governing authority, they have to be able to do that with some justification. Uh, otherwise, they're unjustifiably putting pressure on a politician to do something that they have no no justification to want them to do. So, so you know, arguments and debate most definitely have a, a sort of function in in policy and in politics, but their, their function is to really give direction to and justify the grassroots activism and the yeah. pressure they're not themselves going to make the changes. They are not themselves going to save Australia, save America. Um, they're not themselves going to create, sort of make sure the good policy comes about. And that's where, I, again, sort of, that's where I sort of get frustrated with intellectuals yeah. who, again, who poo-poo the kind of grassroots activism that uses very sort of simple slogans to get people's attention and, and that, that threaten, literally threatens sort of the, the, the careers uh, and the future longevity of politicians and governments. Yeah. My, my frustration with them is that they really have no idea how the world works. They think the world is a, is a faculty lunchroom where you just gather around and talk about ideas and the best argument wins, which actually isn't how faculty lunchrooms work anyway. Um, they've totally misunderstood the world. And um, you know, I think they're, they're doing activists a, a tremendous disservice. So again, it's just my disappointment in intellectuals. We, we do sort of need them. 
You do need them. You do. Um, well, well, you do, Steve. Everybody. I mean, look, I consider myself more of an activist than an intellectual, as I said earlier, but I love taking ideas that um, I get from people like yourself. So when I hear you um, on those long-form podcasts with John Anderson talking about critical race theory and I think even mm-hmm. some of the lectures that you've given yourself that are available on YouTube, just brilliant. I mean, that just feeds me and, and I, I can I can see where that exists in our mm-hmm. education system and the interface between that and politics. And straight away I think, okay, this this is why we have to mobilise people who, in, in my case, yeah. you know, join the Christian Democratic Party, let's put up candidates, let's campaign against people like the New South Wales Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell, who, who won't lift a finger to get gender-fluid ideology out of the schools, even though she's part of a Conservative government, and I could go on sure. and on. But but for me, that um, that spark is lit by listening to intellectuals deconstruct uh, what is actually going on in the academy and how that's then filtering into, into our society in practical ways. So, mm. so that's why your call for activism is uh, music to my ears and hopefully to our listeners. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And, 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 yeah, I mean, I've been over the years really trying to figure out um, what the relationship between ideas, arguments, debate and, and change is. And, and uh, yeah, I've, and I never, ever wanted to sort of suggest... Uh, and you haven't suggested that I suggest this, but I've never wanted to suggest that arguments and, and debate are irrelevant. But it's it's always been, I've always wanted to respond to just, just the idea that you can solve problems with debates. And it's almost become a kind of weasel term now where instead yeah. of actually doing anything, people just now say, well, we need to have a national discussion yeah. about this. We need yeah. to have a debate about this. And again, it's it's it's, it's in some ways my 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 frustration with intellectuals who are, who are not exactly known for their humility who, who often will tend to reduce the solutions to problems to things that intellectuals are really good at doing which is talking and so like racism how do you solve racism oh we need to change the way that we talk and think about race that's a, that's a classic sort of uh, you know, intellectualist solution to to you know a, a problem, and that's what intellectuals like to do. They love to talk, and there's nothing that intellectuals love to talk about more, Lyle, than talking itself. They love yeah. talking about yeah. talking, uh, and that's just something that really frustrates me. Yes, um, yes, yeah. yeah and you uh, caught I think me in that mood that night. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It's good because it 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 really opens up uh, a discussion which I know could go on a lot longer. And just just to finish yeah. with, I think part of um, just to round this off, part of the frustration that that I often feel, and I think that you were speaking into, is is sometimes um, particularly Christian intellectuals, uh, yeah. they bristle a bit about some of the rough edges of some of us activists, and I'm first to say, don't always get it right. But um, the alternative is is silence, and and you can't just um, fight the battle of ideas just by being. I mean, we must be gracious, but, but th- there's a combative element of this as well, yeah. where bad ideas need to be confronted, and uh, that's not always. You know, it can get a bit messy sometimes. Absolutely, but 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 you also need to show the average person uh, that what is happening is really wicked, and and sometimes. The, the best way to do that is you've got to use stark language that isn't always as subtle you know, as it could be. Um, and so, you know, you know, in the same-sex marriage debate, you know, uh, people, you know, you and I and others are saying, look, same-sex marriage is going to be really, really bad for children. 
Mm. And one of the things that you said is that it's going to lead to a kind of stolen generation scenario. Now, I completely 100% agree with that 100%. And I think that was the right language to use. And you used that language because that was the language that Australians would understand. Now, are there nuances that, that, that need to be unpacked? Well, of course there are, but very often there just isn't the opportunity to unpack those nuances yeah. and not very many people read the ABC Religion and Ethics. So you've got to sort of work with what you're given because if you're not prepared to, to sort of simplify things and offer arguments that, strictly speaking, may not make a peer-reviewed journal, um, a, a journal's peer review committee, if you're not prepared to do that, then you, you're basically handing all the policies frankly, over, uh, to use fairly crude language, you're basically handing it all over to the left who currently have so much of the power and are barely opposed by anyone. And so, again, yeah. it's sort of this idea that the, the, the that arguments in the public square always have to be as subtle as possible is, again, just reveals yeah. the, the intellectual's simplistic, deluded understanding about how society works. And it doesn't mean doing evil so that good may come. There's nothing evil about speaking in terms that people understand that so they can see the gravity of the situation. There's nothing evil about that at all. Well, uh, yeah, it's interesting. We should finish on this. But uh, last week in the Sunday Telegraph, uh, there's a big article of uh, two men and a baby that they have acquired through altruistic surrogacy in this case. But to me, that just proves, okay, maybe that mother is willingly giving the baby away, but really the baby is being robbed, is having the love of uh, his mother taken uh, from him. So, yes. um, uh, yeah, I, I certainly don't resolve from that language, although it, it caused me a lot of grief and still does if you, if you Google it. But, uh, but Stephen, this is a, a terrific conversation. I really appreciate you giving, uh, well, it's now been 20 minutes of your precious time uh, to this, but I, I hope it will continue to provoke thought in this area because um, there's no doubt, you know, our, our nation is, uh, we're facing desperate times and, and perhaps in the future we can talk a bit more about what's going on to hollow out the foundations mm -hmm. of our nation. But uh, Stephen Shavora, thank you so much for being with me on Macquarie Street today. Thanks a lot, Lyle. Looking forward to doing it again sometime. Thank you. accelerating the reopening because of our great vaccination rates. But then on the other, you're also holding things back and the, the reopening for unvaccinated people. What's the thinking behind that? We've, we've also, we've always wanted to do, uh, to open up in a measured way. And we've wanted to incentivize vaccination rates. And we have seen an extraordinary effort from people across our state. And ultimately from the outset, uh, we have said, you know, we put a roadmap in place. We wanted to stick to that roadmap um, as much as we could. But ultimately, in circumstances where uh, people have made an extraordinary effort across our state, we've been able to move um, some of those changes forward. Uh, as the Health Minister has said, this is a great day for New South Wales. It is a recognition of the effort that everyone has made. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we, as we open up, we do so safely. Our mobility will increase as we move through this period of time. Uh, we believe that we can get as close to that 95% rate as possible. Uh, that will ensure that we're able to uh, keep hospitalizations down, uh, presentations into ICU down. Um, and as the, as, the, uh, as the jobs minister has pointed out, this is also about personal responsibility, about people continuing the great work they've done across our state um, and in ensuring uh, that we treat people with kindness and understanding, looking out for others. If we look out for our neighbor, we'll be able to ensure that, um, that we keep everybody safe. 
uh, the minister is, is, is completely correct. Uh, simply because you've had a vaccination does not mean you will not be getting COVID. Um, uh, it is not a panacea, it is a protection. Um, and uh, the changes that we have made today uh, do two things. One, bring forward um, the easing of restrictions for those who have made the effort to get fully vaccinated, to look after people right across our state, but also uh, in, in a cautious way to keep a couple of those measures that we had set down for 1 December, pushing them back to 15 December. Now, for those listening to the audio stream, that was the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet. Australians' uh, exemplary compliance with COVID vaccination should not be interpreted as trust in government. Ever-shifting goalposts, uh, such as we've just heard from the Premier, uh, conflicting and patronising health advice, heavy-handed policing and the demonising of dissent has brought us to the brink of peak cynicism. For a system of government that relies on bonds of trust between governors and the governed, further stretching trust risks something snapping. We are perilously close. Among those of us who chose to be vaccinated, there is deep sympathy for those who, for whatever reason, chose differently. Many sectors are now mandating no jab, no job, causing heartache and worry to tens of thousands of families, despite assurances from no less than the Prime Minister that there would be no mandatory vaccination. As choice has morphed into coercion, the rubber band of our social contract has only wound tighter. Anger amongst the unvaccinated uh, heightened uh, this week when Perrottet, uh, seen as the one who punched the frog to get us going again, departed from the much vaunted national plan. Uh, this plan was to keep the unvaccinated people locked uh, up further for another two weeks. You heard he gave no compelling reason for doing that and quoted no health advice and no one particularly seemed to care. With vaccination rates in New South Wales on track to break through 90%, tyrannising the minority passed with hardly a murmur. The national plan said that the unvaxxed would be let out at 80%. Perrottet is now saying 95%, a world record high. I follow the news and I know how to use Google, but I couldn't find any health advice or any reporting explaining why the hospital system remained at risk from the unvaccinated people when the vaccination rates uh, are so high. The respected Burnett Institute, upon which the national plan was based, said opening up, including state borders, and ending lockdowns should occur, occur at 70 to 80% vaccination. None of the premiers, not even Perrottet, stuck to it. Now, as a Christian, I seem to know a disproportionate number of people who have chosen not to take the jab. I respect them, uh, but I don't agree with them all. Some are validly hesitant, a rational response to new vaccines rushed to the front line of a pandemic. Some believe crazy stuff, but I still love them and I still respect them. They think I'm crazy for taking the jab and that's fine. I, can, I hope we can still be friends. I share concerns about the crushing of discussion about ivermectin and alternatives to lockdowns. Where I also deeply sympathise is in the creation of two classes of citizens. Where is the left when it comes to minority rights for the unvaccinated? Sadly, we are becoming ambivalent about even reasonable human rights accommodation uh, for them. As Lincoln Brown wrote in The Spectator online this week, we're moving from segregation to downright exclusion. Dictator Dan Andrews leads the way 
decreeing that the only shopping unvaxxed Victorians can do in 2022 is food shopping. No pubs, no David Jones, no MCG until 2023. Seriously? COVID is not the bubonic plague. Andrews is just being mean, but he did seem to enjoy having the police shoot rubber pellets at protesters. Christian churches in New South Wales have commendably uh, been the exception to the segregationists, refusing to open until the health orders allowed everyone to return to Sunday services together. Elsewhere, the punishment of the unvaxxed is becoming punitive, especially when rapid antigen testing is readily available. Don't get me wrong, there is no problem with the government as part of a pandemic public health response encouraging people to be vaccinated. But we've moved to coercion and Perite admitted, yes, admitted this week that keeping the unvaxxed locked up for longer was designed to further drive up vaccination. Whatever it takes is a popular political dictum made famous by Graham Richardson, but it should never be the modus operandi of government in a free society. Being treated like pawns by the power players of big government, big tech and big pharma only fuels suspicion and for some drives them deeper into conspiracy theories. I've always felt the response uh, to COVID has been a massive overreaction, but have been willing to cut our leaders some slack knowing that they were dealing with a novel virus created by the Chinese Communist Party. We've been in uncharted waters, but we know so much now, we know so much more now, and it's incumbent on politicians to better explain their reasons as they other the 10% of the population. The English philosopher John Stuart Mill warned that the big danger of democracy is the tyranny of the majority. Tyranny always leads to a breakdown of trust and there's nothing more important for politicians to do than rebuild it. Their response to COVID has fractured what little existed pre-pandemic. Well, that's it for Macquarie Street this week. My promised uh, interview with my friend Tony McClellan will be held over until next week. You won't want to miss our discussion about his uh, brand new book, Glorious Ride. During the week, uh, I'm blogging at lyleshelton.com.au. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Lyle Shelton. Finally, please be praying for the Christian Democratic Party as uh, members decide its future over the coming weeks. Until next week, God bless.